Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. So this morning's sermon in the God Is series is entitled, God Is Love. God Is Love. I'm going to do two things at the outset of this sermon. I'm going to give a definition and then ask you a deep, deep theological question. The definition is this. Love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's need. Love is the accurate estimate and the adequate supply of another person's need. One of my mentors taught me that years and years ago. Now I want to ask you a question. It's a deep, deep theological question, and it's going to be intricately involved in this sermon that, again, is entitled, God is Love. And here's the question. There's two answers, one of two answers. You have to pick one. It is this. Which of these two proves to you that there's evil in the world, spiders or snakes? Which one? Deep theological question here. How many of you, it's spiders, that when you look at them, they absolutely creep you out? Raise your hand. Which of you, it's snakes? Raise your hand. You know, the snakes have overwhelmingly taken this in the prior service. Now, by the way, um, snakes are mentioned innumerable times in the text. In the Bible, spiders are only mentioned four times. Four times in the King James Version, three times in the New International Version. So in my humble opinion, since I think spiders are a greater proof of evil in the world than snakes, I think the NIV is much more godly because it only mentions spiders three times. It translated as lizard instead of spider one time. By the way, quick story, my son hates spiders. And we figured that out when he was very, very young. And UVA was doing this study where they would get you past your phobia. And so for $100 given to the parents, you could take your child in for a study and they would help them overcome their phobia. They guaranteed that if your child had a spider phobia, they would be holding a tarantula in their hand, unafraid within eight weeks. Peter has still not forgiven us <laughs> for our money-making scheme, which we never did, and he's still bitter about it. When we brought him the idea, he completely freaked out. I think he was 10 years of age, but still can't believe we would have ever even considered making money off his phobia. It made total sense to me at the time. <laughs> now, what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at God as love. In order to do that, though, we have to learn a story about snakes from the Older Testament. Because the story about snakes will become an integral part of the episode that we're going to read about Jesus that carries in it the most famous verse of all the Bible, John 3.16. Here's the story we need to know from the Older Testament, and here's the context. The children of Israel have exited bondage and slavery in Egypt. They're moving towards the promised land. And in doing so, they begin to rebel against God and against God's chosen leader, Moses. 
And here's what the text teaches us. This is the episode taken from Numbers 21, 5 through 20. I'll just read it for us. It says, they, meaning the Israelites, the Israelites spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. We spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. What a crazy story. But what's interesting is Jesus references this story in John chapter three. So what we're going to do now is we're going to read John chapter three, verses one through 17. John three sixteen is embedded in this episode. We need to become familiar with one person though before we read our biblical story. And the person we need to become familiar with is a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, according to John chapter three, verse one, we are told that culturally, he would have been the following person. He had it all together. He was highly educated. He would have been phenomenally wealthy and he would have been a religious civic leader. Here's a guy that has it all together. Everything that you're looking for to find the perfect man in the life of Jesus as far as wealth, success, the outward trappings of God's blessing and having everything that you would possibly want to be someone in the culture of Jesus' day, Nicodemus embodies that. He literally personifies success. Now let's read our story. John 3, 1 through 17. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, he comes at night because he has a lot to lose. When you're a wealthy, powerful public figure and you approach Jesus, you have a lot to lose, so he comes at night. Notice Jesus doesn't rebuke him for that. Reading on, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. By the way, in every single Bible, there will be a footnote next to born again, and it could also be translated born from above. By the way, born from above is a much more accurate translation, especially with the, the system of thought that's coming from Jesus. But again, Jesus says to Nicodemus, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. That is the dumbest question in all of scripture. By the way, there are no dumb questions about faith. Never have been, never will be. Jesus fielded 
all of them and never made the questioner feel stupid. Let's read on. Truly, or or Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you, which is plural in the original Greek. He's not just talking to Nicodemus, he's talking to anyone who ever hears this story. You, plural, must be born again or born from above. Reading on, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher. Remember, he's a man of incredible authority and power. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 14, here's the story that we read looking back into the Older Testament. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Reading on, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And by the way, in every Bible that you hold, there's a footnote by John 3.16. And what the translators admit to you is that John 3.16 easily should have been in quotations, and I believe it should have been. So in the NIV Bible, it's not in quotations, but I believe Jesus said, John 3.16, I believe it's a quote. By the way, there's no punctuation in Greek. No exclamation points, question marks, periods, none of that. There's no punctuation. And so when translators translate John 3.16, they make the decision to stop the quotations after the end of verse 15. I think John 3.16 is a direct quote from Jesus. Now what I want to do this morning is I would like for us to take a new look at or a fresh look at John 3.16 and be reminded again that God is truly love. God is love. What again I'd like to do is remind us of John 3.16. Let's read it again out loud, all of us. Are you ready? Let's read it out loud together. Here we go. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to have some very basic, simple thoughts about God is love taken from John 3.16. But I want to switch it just a little bit. I want to switch it from saying God is love to saying God is loving. And the reason for that is 
is God is love can sound stagnant or inactive. But as my friend Mike Olajars, who prayed this morning, ends every email with, love is a verb. Love is a verb. It's active. God is love. God is loving. It's active and participatory in this world today. Now, before we take a look at John 3.16, I want to make sure I frame this in a way that all of us can kind of sink our teeth into, and it's this. I was raised in a church where the goal of the church, and it was a good goal, was to have all of us pray what was called the sinner's prayer. And it's important. I'm not saying it's unimportant. But in the church that I was raised in, the goal was to have everyone pray the prayer from children's church all the way up to men's and women's ministries. And so I can remember we were often challenged and rightly so to pray the prayer. And it was just something simple like, Jesus, forgive me of all of my sins. Cleanse me. I repent of where I've been and what I've done. Jesus, take me, forgive me so that I can be saved. And that's a great prayer. But the point I want to make is this. Jesus never called anyone to pray that prayer. As I said last week in the sermon, that Jesus said two words to people, and it was, follow me. It was never to pray a prayer and then stop. It was always the sense of understanding who Christ is and then following him. So I want to say God is loving. Let me illustrate it another way. 32 years ago, my wife and I got married. I met Fran in seminary, and I remembered seeing her at a, an event that we had for incoming students. And she threw a softball to me, and it came in what's called on a rope. And when that ball hit my glove, I thought, wow, who's this? And then later, I saw her in the library, and I made a deal with God. First of all, the Holy Spirit put these words in my mouth, hubba hubba. You ever have that where you see Leah like, wow, okay. And I said, God, if you will just let me sit next to her. And so we started going to church together. And I remember sitting next to her. And God blessed the pastor because he'd always say, hold hands with the person next to you while we pray. And I positioned myself. And when I held her hand, I felt the presence of the Lord. And so I just knew. But the idea was, we dated for almost five years, not good, bad, or wrong, just what we did, and then we ended up getting married. On the day we got married, she gave me a ring. I've worn it every day ever since. Now, could you imagine if my relationship with Fran was based on this? 32 years ago, she gave me a ring. See, here's the proof. And you'd say what? Wow. I think and I hope that your love is active, that it wasn't just denoted by a ring 32 years ago that you point back to in history and say, hey, back then, she gave me a ring, look, proof, we're married, I love her. See the ring? And everyone would say, that's absurd. The idea is, is that God is love, and the text is that God is loving That God is so loving the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, very simply and practically, I would like for us to move past the sinner's prayer and begin to understand what John 3.16 is teaching. Very quickly, first of all, 
God is loving because agape. The word that's used in John 3.16 is the Greek word for unconditional love. There's basically three words for love in the text. There's eros, that's erotic. There's philos, or phileo, which is brotherly love. You know Philadelphia? Philadelphia, the city of what? Have you ever been there? (laughs) Going on. (laughs) Then there's agape. Agape is unconditional love. It's a love that takes you as you are, but loves you too much to leave you the same. That's what unconditional love is. A love that takes you as you are, but loves you too much to leave you the same. And so the text teaches us that God is loving because he loves us with agape love, unconditional love. Next, God is loving because love is a gift. The text tells us in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world, he so agaped the world that he gave, that he gave. Think about this just for a moment. That gift to you is free, but it was very costly to God. Very costly. Jesus is the gift, his one and only son. Now, we are moving towards Christmas, and maybe I'm one of the only ones that does this, and the first service people admitted it. I hope I'm not the only one, maybe I am, that I actually pray Uh, and ask God to direct me with the gifts I give the people I love. Anyone else ever do that? One or two of us. I just go, God, help me to get that gift that's really, really meaningful. Well, our vacuum cleaner died. (laughs) And um, we went two days before our anniversary to this janitorial supply place. And we were standing there, and my wife had picked out the vacuum cleaner she wanted, And so we were at the checkout, and there were a couple of women and some service guys behind the counter. And as I was paying for the vacuum cleaner and Fran was next to me, I very jokingly said, I'm so glad that she picked this now because our anniversary is in two days. Total joke. You should have seen the looks on the women's faces. (laughs) One of them wanted to say, dude, I hope you're smart enough not to buy your wife a vacuum cleaner for your anniversary. Here's some pastoral wisdom. Don't even joke about that. It doesn't go over well. I would never before God and man ever dream of buying my wife a vacuum cleaner for our anniversary. It seemed like a timely joke. It didn't go over well at all. And here's the thing. There are gifts we can give people that have high utility i.e. a vacuum cleaner. But here's what I know, is that what God gives to us in Christ is a gift. The reality of it is, you cannot work for it, you cannot earn it. All you can do is recognize the gift. Next, God is loving because the gift is for whoever. By the way, this is the part that Nicodemus would have had the biggest problem with. Because you see, Nicodemus 
was born into the right family. He was Jewish. And Jews, and during the time of Jesus, believed very specifically that they were the chosen people of God. And when Jesus begins to talk to Nicodemus about the gift of eternal life and that it will be for whoever, Nicodemus shudders and says, how can this be? You see, the gift that God gives is forever. And the reality of it is we all need it. Every one of us needs it. Next, God is loving because the gift is for whoever and it's personal. It's highly, highly personal. Why is it personal? Because his gift is a person. It's personal because it's the gift literally is the person of his son. Now, I don't know if you've ever received a gift where you knew the person knew you. But it's a very satisfying thing. I was raised in a family, and I've mentioned this before, but we grew up on a farm in Wisconsin. And I can remember my favorite Christmas gift ever. Take a moment and think about yours. What's your favorite Christmas gift you were ever given? Mine was, when we were living on the farm, I was probably nine or 10 years old, And my grandfather, who lived in Prince Rupert, British Columbia, Canada, had this little thing he would do where we could pick something out of the Sears catalog, mail him what we wanted in a picture. We'd cut it out, and he would buy it for us and give it to us. So I picked out the gift I had always wanted, and I found it in the Sears catalog, and I was so excited. The problem was is that I was young and I should have known if, and I would have known if I was older that the price of the thing should have indicated something very important about what I was asking him to buy was missing. So I can remember coming down the old farmhouse steps and looking under the Christmas tree and there was the gift I had wanted so badly and it was my favorite gift ever. ever. It was a yellow snowmobile. I was so excited until... I went over and lifted it up. There was no motor in it. The yellow snowmobile was a plastic sled. Well, I took it out onto the farm here. We had a barn hill that we would always sled down, and it would slide horribly. And the thing of it was, it was top-heavy because it was a snowmobile, and sleds are low to the ground. Not only that, you could turn it, and it wouldn't turn. It would slide straight down the hill, plow snow in front of it, stop, and then kick you off over the little (laughs) snow thing. It was such a bummer. I was so frustrated. I hadn't really recognized that you needed a snowmobile with a motor, and $11.95 would not buy you a snowmobile with a motor. It was my favorite present until it wasn't. That leads us to the next and final point. God is loving because the gift for whoever is personal and eternal. John 3.16 teaches us that by believing in Christ, we have eternal life, everlasting life. It's something that will always be useful for every person of all time. As we close, I'm going to ask that you would stand with me. And as we stand together, 
I'm going to read for us 1 John 4, 9 through 11. 1 John 4, 9 through 11 says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he has loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How do we put feet to your faith with this? It's relatively simple, but eternal and life-changing. What do we do is we believe. We believe John 3.16 is true, that God did send his son into the world, and that whoever believes on him will have eternal life now. So putting feet to your faith, it's simple, yet life-changing. You place your faith and your hope and your trust in Christ.